Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Julie Smolich, Senior Vice President Provider Services at National Marrow Donor Program, also known as Be The Match. So Julie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. I'm always excited to talk about what we do at Be The Match. So Julie, what I always like to do before we get into the main part of the discussion is give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So the floor is yours. Fantastic. Well, I have the best job uh, because I get to lead the team that's really responsible for ensuring that patients get access to the life-saving bone marrow or stem cell transplants they need. So what my team does is works directly with transplant centers and also other cell and gene therapy developers to basically get them the cellular products they need for their patients precisely when they need them. So we really orchestrate a large network of apheresis centers, collection centers, donor centers, recruitment groups, transplant centers to bring um, all of those elements together to ultimately get those life-saving cells to that patient who desperately needs them. No, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but before we get to that, (laughs) I'm curious, what got you into the healthcare industry in the first place? Yeah, I've taken um, a slightly different path probably than most. I, I started my career in financial services, and then I was in education for a very long time, but really always saw healthcare is a path I wanted to go down. And it really started decades ago in my previous role at Capella Education Company, where I had the opportunity to actually develop healthcare programs in partnership with subject matter experts and industry experts, and then offer those programs to working adults uh, online. And so I got to develop programs in nursing and healthcare administration, informatics, public health, and you know, it was through the effort at the time I was a, a product manager and really dug deep into the industry and the labor market and where healthcare was going and the challenges the healthcare system was facing. It really piqued my, my interest in many ways um, because I knew there were big problems to solve in healthcare and access to quality healthcare being uh, highest among them. And so I had kind of started plotting my move into healthcare while I was still at Capella because I really saw that as a place I wanted to go in the future. Another influencer I had was I served on the board of a a local nonprofit here in Minneapolis called Headway Emotional Health. And um, they do incredible work helping connect uh, people in need with access to emotional, behavioral, mental health services. And, And I really thought this is meaningful work, mission-driven work, and that's that's what I wanted to do at the next phase of my career was get into healthcare or nonprofit and be the match came along and is sort of the perfect combination of both. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a great kind of pathway to have been able to pursue. So can you kind of tell us more about you know what the bone marrow and stem cell donation process is and kind of how does it all start? Okay, well, of course, unfortunately, it starts with a sick patient. So we um, help patients that are dealing with blood cancers and blood disorders. There are about 75 different um, indications that can be treated through bone marrow or stem cell transplant. So it starts with that sick patient. And the first step, once a physician realizes that the patients need something more than chemotherapy to help get them uh, back on course, when they realize transplant is the option to pursue, 
it really starts by looking at their own family to see if there is a genetic match, uh, HLA matching, human lipos, uh, lymphocyte antigen matching. And so HLA matching is really important because you need cells that are, um, you know, essentially the same as the patient's to ensure engraftment and positive long-term outcomes. So the first step will be look to look at any siblings that that patient might have. Unfortunately, only about 30% of the time does a patient have a match within their family. And so that's when we get involved because we operate a huge registry, millions, access to millions of, of potential donors on our registry that are willing to donate on behalf of the sick patient. And so, once that process is identified and the need to come to us and get a volunteer donor or cord blood unit, then we work through a variety of processes to help ultimately sync up that patient's prep regimen with a, a willing donor who's able to uh, donate their cells, get their cells collected, and ultimately then transferred and infused into that patient. So there's many steps along the way, and I'm happy to walk through them further, but it's it's quite a process and it's it's an undertaking that requires, you know, again, these heroic efforts of these volunteer donors who don't know the person they're even donating to. Yeah, kind of as you just stated, there are so many steps that you just identified. And I'm sure that was even even with the number of steps you kind of quickly ran through, there's probably many steps under that. So kind of Going, I guess, not strictly to the beginning of the process, but to the beginning of the donor process, yeah. how, how are potential donors identified and how do you create the registry that you mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. So our registry is, is important in that we are reflective of the composition of, of the United States, really, right, of the potential patient population. So each year we recruit about 300,000 registry members to our registry. Right now, uh, we have within NMDP, our own registry is about 9 million, but we have access to about 39 million potential donors worldwide. And we do that through a very collaborative international network. So um, how we identify the donors that we want on our registry is, is basically targeting young, uh, largely males, and we are trying to increase the, the genetic um, composition and diversify the genetic composition of our registry. So really targeting ethnically diverse populations because right now they are underrepresented on our registry. So, you know, the best thing we can do to get our registry built up and, and have that ideal composition for patients is to go to college campuses um, really like to target HBCUs where we can get um, more folks of color added to the registry. Um, but it's not just about getting them to the registry. What we found over our history is there was a period of time where quantity was trumping quality of our registry members, right? And unfortunately, when they would get the call to donate on behalf of a patient, sometimes they wouldn't even remember that they signed up. They would um, have no recollection of when that even happened. And obviously, that is devastating for a patient on the other end who thinks they might possibly have a match, but then that that donor does not want to proceed. So we've really been focusing the last you know five plus years on ensuring that we have a better recruitment and engagement strategy. So when people sign up, they know what they're signing up for. They are passionate about the mission. Uh, we keep them engaged throughout. So it's not just a one and done. They don't join the registry and then they don't hear from us for five years until potentially there's a match. But how do we keep them engaged and connected to our mission, connected to what it means to be a donor and to, and to help patients? 
so that they are more likely to be willing and able and available when the when the time comes that they get the call to help a donor. And what are some examples of the way that you do that engagement? So as you said, keeping folks who have signed up kind of educated and aware that you know this yeah. opportunity will hopefully or not hopefully, but will likely come down the road at some point. Yeah, well, un- unlike me, uh, because I'm of a certain age, you know, the, the folks we're recruiting today are active on social media, TikTok, Snapchat, right? So what we're trying to do is engage with them in, in media that make the most sense for them and where they already are. So our marketing and engagement team does a fabulous job of putting relevant content that speaks to that particular donor or potential donor, right? So um really featuring stories about patients or donors that maybe are in their same geographic area or from their same ethnic group, really trying to help build that community with them so that they can see themselves uh, and they can connect in a, in a deeper level. So we do a lot via social media, of course, you know, newsletters, emails, texts, we do all of those types of things to try to keep our mission front and center with them. And then we do have um, a number of account teams around the country who are more active and present in certain geographical areas. And they oftentimes will do different donor drives and, and activities or, or fun runs and things like that, where we will invite people that are on the registry to come and get engaged with us in those ways and you know meet with us in person and participate in things that are also um, driving our mission forward. Yeah, kind of with that mixture of, you know, it sounds like, you know, social media and electronic engagement, but also in-person engagement. How did COVID kind of impact that ability to recruit new members to the registry? Oh, uh, unfortunately, it impacted it significantly, right? So we couldn't be physically out recruiting new members to the registry. Um, We do a ton of recruitment electronically as well. So we certainly were able to keep our registry numbers up just through electronic, you know, engagement activities. We just had to stop all the campus visits, the in-person recruitment. Um, so that that definitely, re, you know, created a, a scenario where our numbers were down compared to historical years, but we were still able to keep building on our registry and the composition. Uh, so we did try to do more within our, you know, social media and other campaigns to really find more influencers. Again, people that are going to help us deliver that mission to these different target potential donor populations in ways that were meaningful to them, even though they weren't in person. So we really tried to amp up the connectedness we had with those communities in different ways. Um, We are back now to doing more in-person recruitment events, and that has been just outstanding to see the engagement on campus and the excitement for what we're doing um, always is meaningful to our teams that are doing that work because they get a lot of um, engagement and pleasure out of that as well. So it's been fun to be able to be back on campus. Yeah, no, kind of that in-person interaction is something that can't be overstated of no. how important it can be. You can establish only so much when it's all virtual, but you, it's always helpful to take that next step. Right, right. We're thrilled to be back on campus. So kind of now that we've kind of, it sounds like covered a lot of the initial recruitment stage, mm-hmm. what's the next step after that recruitment? Yeah, so then essentially what happens, right, is is we have one of those, a sick patient, right, somebody that's got a blood cancer or other blood disorder, and the physician that's treating them has determined transplant is a good option for them. What will happen after they've ruled out a match within their family, they will essentially do a search with us. We have a proprietary 
technology system called MatchSource. And what a transplant center can do is enter the information about the patient into our system, including through their HLA and genetic makeup and all sorts of other factors. And we have an algorithm that runs that will essentially show them all of the potential matches that exist on the registry, as well as cord blood units. So we have, um, you know, a vast array of, of sources that we can select from our patients can have access to. So that sort of kicks off the process. And once a provider sees the potential options for the patient, they, they weigh the factors about each of the potential donors. And then they ultimately make a decision that they want to, in fact, place an order essentially for a particular donor or cord blood unit. And we'll just stick with donors for this scenario. So that triggers a lot of activity on, on our end, right? So we will then start making outreach and contact to that registry member to say, hey, there is a patient out there who needs you. You know, this is what we know uh, about that patient. This is what we know about the disease they're, um, you know, battling right now. Are you, are you interested is, is donating something you are still interested in doing? And so we'll make that initial contact. If they say, yes, I'm absolutely willing to help. Then we go through a variety of steps to make sure that the typing we have on file for them is correct. They have a physical exam. They go through a workup process. So they go through a number of steps to make sure, you know, one, they're physically capable of doing it. They're mentally capable of doing it and ultimately that they have the time available to do it. So we'll work with them through that whole process. And then the, the transplant center has to also make a choice on the type of product. So when a donor is donating, there are two options. They can donate actual bone marrow, sort of from their pelvic or hip bone, or they can do what we call peripheral blood stem cell donation or PBSC. And it's essentially kind of like giving blood on steroids. They are injected over a five-day period with um, a, a medication that essentially stimulates their, their blood stem cells and, and gets them flowing through their body so that at the day of collection, um, they have more cells to potentially donate to that patient. So they go through that regimen of, of a five-day sort of shot in the leg process, and then they get to an apheresis collection center, and they sit on a machine for several hours, and it's like donating blood. Um, we take out the cells we need and we put back into them uh, the cells we do not need. And um, overall, fairly painless, you know, for for those donors. Like I said, it's largely like giving blood, but just maybe a little bit longer and a little bit more intense. So fairly straightforward um, process. For the bone marrow donation, that does require a donor to go under general anesthesia. And um, the physician essentially extracts bone marrow from their hip bone. And so certainly there's a little more risk involved with that, but overall, you know, we have a great track record of safety and we are able to um, get that donor recuperated and on their way in a fairly short period of time. So those are the paths that could go down. PBSC is leveraged about 80% of the time and, and marrow about 20% of the time. Yeah, no, a very interesting process. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Julie Smolich of National Marrow Donor Program. We've been talking about bone marrow donation. And Julie, kind of with that description of what happens once it's identified that a donation is needed, made me realize that I think I forgot to ask about one piece of the initial donor identification process or the donor registration process. You know, because you were talking about, you know, that the querying uh, clinician can go into a database and search the information that you've got. So kind of what information or what, or maybe what samples are required when someone is initially signing up to be a part of the registry? 
Yeah, so we do, it's fairly simple. We essentially send them out a little kit of, of swabs, you know, large Q-tips essentially, and they swab the inside of their cheeks. They put it back into a, a kit and assembly, essentially send it back to us. And then we type them, we understand what sort of their HLA type is so that they can have that on file. We put that in our system so that all of the genetic factors that are important for making a selection on behalf of a patient are captured in that system, along with their demographic information, their kind of basic health history questionnaire. So there's all of that information available, you know, for women that'll call out, you know, if they've had a pregnancy in the past, et cetera, um, exposure to certain parts of the world where certain you know, viruses and infections are more common, et cetera. So it includes a lot of comprehensive information from both just that buckle swab, as well as the health history questionnaire. Yeah, so it kind of sounds like the the health history questionnaire, at least, it doesn't sound all too different from what you might experience when you go in to donate blood. Yeah, exactly. Very, very similar. Yeah, and kind of then your also description a little bit ago about the, the kind of blood stem cell donation option. That helps explain, you know, an, you know, one of the available options that I've seen popping up more when I'm looking at blood drives, which is, you know, it says it'll take a few hours. And I think it said, the, was it apheresis? I think apheresis center. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so now I think hope, hopefully that helps people who have maybe seen that if they're active in, in the yeah. Uh, world. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And I would also say certainly go check out our website, um, bethematch.org. Uh, and they, they have great resources uh, for folks if they're interested in becoming um, a member of our registry and what donation looks like, whether it's PBSC or marrow. And, and it describes all of that in the right amount of detail. That's uh, <laughs> not overwhelming to those that maybe don't have a scientific or clinical background like myself. It really explains it in layman's terms, which is great. It, so when someone's identified to actually donate, do you need to be in the same geographic region or could you potentially find a donor anywhere? And you know, if it can be anywhere, do they donate where they are or do they have to travel? Great question. Uh, about 50% of what we do involves an international component. In fact, I'm, I've gotten myself typed. I'm on the registry and I found out if I were to get sick, my best match is in Poland. So um, it, it really is an international network that we are a part of. And so what it involves is, yes, yeah, so the registry will include all sources, both domestically that we have on our registry, as well as those around the globe in countries that do the same thing that we're doing. And so, you know, if the best match is a, a woman in Poland, then what will happen is, is my team will work with the registry in Poland. We will, they will make outreach to that donor on our behalf, um, obviously in their native language and in according to their customs, and they will gauge, just like we would do, their interest in donating for a patient in the U.S. And um, ultimately, you know, they make the choice to donate or not, and then we will have them collected within their country. And then we have a amazing set of logistics and courier experts who ultimately will hand deliver the product. So we'll go to Poland, our courier will be there waiting for that product, whether it's bone marrow or apheresis, um, PBSC, and they will get on a plane, carry those life-saving cells back to the U.S. and deliver them to the transplant center where they're needed for the patient. So it's um, really uh, unique, I would say, infrastructure and supply chain and logistics capability that we have. Uh, especially when you're talking about human cells. So it's it's pretty fascinating all that we're able to do in a very short period of time. We can turn cells around anywhere in the world within 48 hours. So it's really impressive. 
Yeah, no, that is very astounding. And it's, I guess, from, is there a time limitation of from when it's collected to when it's viable for use? Yeah, exactly. And that's why we really stick to that 48-hour period. Anything after that, I think that there is a degradation in cells that kind of goes down commensurately with the amount of time that has lapsed. So we really do stick. Oftentimes, it's much less than 48 hours, but that's sort of the upper limit that we have. And even during COVID, we were <laughs> miraculously able to maintain that with the exception of maybe a month or two uh, period of time where the median went up to 53 hours, but still within the realm of reasonableness for the patients uh, to be transplanted. Yeah, so what, once the donation is received, kind of what happens at that point? Yeah, so what has happened prior to that actually is the the patient has gone through a conditioning regimen. So, um, and I'm going to just put it on the universe. I am not a physician or a clinician, but I'll, I'll describe to you what does happen in my very uh, basic understanding. But essentially the, the provider, the, the physician is going to eradicate their diseased blood and immune system and, and will replace them with, with healthy donor cells. So they go through a period of conditioning where there's maybe chemotherapy, radiation, and other drugs that are involved and that will essentially kill off the diseased cells. So those patients are left without an immune system. And then that's where we come in. And that's why, you know, we supply those cells from a living volunteer donor or that banked cord blood unit. And it really is like a trapeze act coming together, if you can imagine, because we're talking about a very time sensitive situation. The patient is going through this very rigorous process to get their immune system down to zero. While at the same time, we're working with that donor to get them through their processes to make sure they can donate and ensure they're in good um, health to do so. And then we also have to match it up with an apheresis or marrow collection center that has availability at any given time, right? So we really have to bring all these elements together in pr just the you know, precise moment that those cells are needed for that patient to start the infusion. <laughs> Excuse me. So when that happens, the cells are collected, we get them to the transplant center, uh, for the patient who is now ready to receive them, essentially they'll arrive and, and they'll be sitting in like an IV bag and it's a very anticlimactic process, but they um, sit there and essentially those new cells are, are infused into their systems. And then from there, the process is just gauging engraftment over a period of, you know, 90 days or so to see how the cells have engrafted how that patient, you know, is starting to generate their own new cells from that volunteer donor. And then essentially, you know, looking out beyond that, you know, for a year's time, essentially seeing how are the longer term outcomes looking for this patient? You know, are there any long term implications with graft versus host disease, et cetera? But really, it's it's miraculous how it all comes together. And that patient ultimately is able to receive those cells and and hopefully start over with somebody else's immune system. And kind of think about that entire process. Is it just a one-time donation or, or is there the potential to have to go back to the donor yeah. to collect more uh, material depending on how that kind of transplant progresses? Yeah. So yes, we do oftentimes go back to donors if unfortunately a patient relapses. Um, we, what we don't typically do, so say on the front end, we aren't able to collect enough cells. You know, there's a certain dosing that is required. If a, if a donor can't produce enough cells, which sometimes happens. We typically will not keep trying because that donor, you know, is there's just no, there's donor safety reasons and all of that. We'll typically see if there's a different option, a backup donor, another suitable match that we can pursue. Um, but yes, in the case of, of patients that do receive a donation, there are a number of times where they receive a follow-up donation from that same person. 
So, and then kind of what does the process look like after the donation and once you've gone through the tracking and that it's hopefully, you know, kind of settled in and is producing the expected results? Yeah, so we do long-term long-term follow-up with the both the donors and the patients to understand sort of their progression over several years just to see, you know, how, how they did in graft, if they had any long-term impacts, if they had any graft versus host disease. And so we manage all of that data. We collect all that data, analyze all that data, and ultimately can help inform clinical decision-making in the future. Because if you can imagine, you know, if we can group a set of patients with similar diseases or indications together, and we can look at, did they get bone marrow or did they get PBSC or a cord blood unit, right? Um, or how, what was the cell dosing? We can look at all of those factors to then over time be able to inform the community to say, hey, it, it appears like patients at this age or with this indication do better with this sort of regimen or this, this dosing or this product. And here's the data that backs it up. So we can really use the power of all the information that we collect to provide better information back to the transplant center so they can make even better decisions in the future for the next patients that they, that they serve. Yeah, no, that's really makes sense to try and track all that information. And as you said, use it to assess what's going well, what's not going as well as would be hoped for. And then it's, you know, kind of that the refinement that you'd always hope would be happening. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's, it's a constant, um, we have a really robust database. So we continue to find new ways to, to evaluate it, to, um, you know, share that information back with the transplant center. So the whole community can get better. So kind of, Understanding that that refinement can happen, you know, over your time in with involvement in kind of the marrow donation process, you know, how have you seen it evolve, and how do you see it you know, continuing to to change in the future? Yeah, so you know, one of the biggest challenges we have, and we talked about it a bit earlier, is the composition of our existing registry is not reflective of the sort of ethnic diversity we have in the United States. And what's amazing about the United States, right, is we keep getting more diverse. And that is a wonderful thing for every possible reason, except for HLA matching, because as we get more diverse, um, you know, we just aren't going to have a match for everyone on the registry. There's, we, have, we have a saying here is we can't registry, register our way out of this. We're, we're never going to get to a point where we can have a perfect match for everyone. So one of the really interesting things that we've been working on and sponsoring here at NNDP is a, a set of studies, a set of clinical trials that are looking at mismatched donors, meaning they are not a perfect genetic match. They are close, but not perfect. Um, and we are basically doing, we're calling it the um, an HLA mismatched unrelated trial, and it uses post-transplant cyclophosphamide. So that's just a regimen that we add into the, the transplant, essentially, that reduces the severity of long-term graft-versus-host disease, et cetera, and it allows for better engraftment. So we have that trial happening right now. And what that is going to allow us to do is serve more patients of all backgrounds. You know, Caucasians today have a greater than 79% chance of finding a match on our registry, and it's less than 30% for folks who are of African-American descent. So that is not okay. And so what this study does is actually increases the odds of somebody finding a, a match, a treatment option um, immensely. So it's really exciting. I mean, this for, for our organization right now, this is one of the most exciting things we have going. Our transplant center partners are really excited about it. They see the potential to serve more patients. And we can, you know, hopefully take a big 
um, chunk out of the huge disparity that we see in this industry right now. This is one of the biggest health disparities that exists, and we are trying to do everything we can to to eliminate or at least significantly reduce that. No, that sounds like fantastic work, and you know, kind of as you said, you know, it's identifying you know a, a gap that hasn't been able to be filled yet, and trying to come out come up with a way to go around it. Yeah, and, you know, really provide the, the help that's needed. So. You know, I think that's a great hopeful message because believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Julie Smolich, for a great conversation today. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag H-C-D-E-J-U-R-E. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. Mm-hmm.